This week on the Backtable podcast. At the beginning, it was being very clear and very focused on what I thought was a clear problem, opportunity, the fact that it was a clinical problem I was addressing, the fact that it was fundamentally right for the patient, and the fact that actually you could get some fellow kind of clinical buy-in to say, yeah, I think this is going to work. That doesn't always happen, but I think having some of those validation points helps give you purpose and kind of be like, yeah, you know, I can actually do this. I think staying true to that has certainly kept me moving forward. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast, where we discuss all things ENT. We bring you the best and brightest in our field with the hope that you can take something from our show to your practice. My name is Gopi Shah. I'm a pediatric ENT, and we have an awesome show today. I have Dr. Krishan Ramdu. He's an ENT surgeon, CEO, and founder of Timpa Health, a London-based startup that has created an all-in-one hearing health assessment system, a smartphone-enabled tool capable of oral microsection, screening audiometry, and otoscopy. He's here to tell us about Timpa Health, his journey from idea to product and startup. Welcome to the show, Krish. How are you? Good, thanks, Gopi. Thank you very much for having me on. Thanks for coming on. Can you first tell our audience a little bit about yourself? Yes, no, happy to. So as, as you said, by background, I'm an ear, nose and throat surgeon by training. So I was in practice here in uh, the UK in our National Health Service for about 12 and a half, 13 years. It was quite in depth into ENT practice and surgery. And then I stepped out and I did a, a PhD, which was based around kind of global hearing health and um, certainly had aspects of what Timber Health is today in that. And from there, over the last three and a bit years, um, have really spun out Timber Health and uh, been fully focused on Timber Health now. But uh, certainly it was a, a journey from seeing a clinical problem as a clinician to wanting to solve for that and then doing that through technology and innovation and uh, that kind of started the process of uh, Timber Health, really. So, you know, we, we talk about clinical problems that we see, right, when you're in practice. You know, we all kind of have ideas of like, oh, this happens all the time. I wish we had this type of section, or I wish I had something that bent this way. What was it for you? Tell us a little bit about that sort of initial light bulb moment. And then what clinical problem did you see and what made you stick with it? Because many of us will see these problems, but you know, it's hard to know when to stick with it, or I haven't had that spark yet. <laughs> well, for me, I think it certainly didn't happen overnight. I think it certainly evolved over time. And if I look back right at the beginning, so I'd been in practice for quite a number of years for, for more than a decade, but actually I think where the light bulb moment came was I was seeing a particular patient. So there was a patient, I was a, a resident, a very junior resident. So I'd been in practice for about two years. And I was doing a stint in a geriatric ward. And this lady, she was 79. She had been admitted into the geriatric ward um, with an infection. She was treated for that infection. And, you know, still following on from that, she was very disengaged with the ward, the nurses, her family, a little bit reclusive. And so me being a budding ENT surgeon, I thought, well, let me uh, go check her hearing. So I looked in her ear with a standard otoscope and um, saw that it was full of wax. Couldn't see, couldn't make an assessment of her eardrum. So decided, let me wheel her down to the department myself, remove the wax, and then I got her a hearing test. 
And lo and behold, that hearing test showed that she had age-related hearing loss. I then followed up that patient for six months. She was fitted with a hearing aid and six months later, she was a completely different lady, like engaging with her family, planning her 80th birthday. For me, that was a small light bulb moment and said, well, you know, that small intervention made such a big impact. And actually, from there, I went and published a paper. I was so interested and I went on all the wards of the hospital, the geriatric wards, and screened for them to have a hearing test. And it showed, you know, there was a huge problem here. There was about 30, 35% of patients who had an undiagnosed hearing problem. So from there, that was kind of the first thing. So, okay, there's, an, there's a problem here. As I continued kind of through my clinical training, I kept kind of seeing that problem and, you know, looked into it further and realized that there were half a billion people in the world with disabling hearing loss. By 2030, you know, it would overtake diabetes and cataracts in the top 10 disease burdens because of the aging population, going to loud concerts, listening to loud music. The ears weren't necessarily built for that, as you know, gave that constant kind of micro trauma. And um, I think it then came with just seeing more patients, finding it difficult to access care, non-digital way, loads of different tools, lots of different specialists being involved in their care. And I just, it came to a head where I was like, well, there has to be a better way. And I think that, to your last point, was what made me stick with it because it was almost continually seeing a similar type of patient and thought, well, you know, over the course of more than a decade, I didn't see anything change. I thought, well, maybe this is the time to do that. So we see the same clinical problem over and over. So you have a large population of elderly patients, and then you realize, wait a second, there's even a larger population, not just elderly, that have hearing loss. So that's one issue is the hearing test. And the second issue is the cerumen impaction. And how hard is it to remove cerumen, you know, for a patient that's in the hospital or that's not in your clinic, basically, right? You don't have the microscope and your tools right there. Can you tell our audience exactly what is the device? What is Tympa Health? Because you said you wheeled the patient down to your clinic, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was like in a wheelchair because I didn't want to wait for a hospital porter. So I thought, let's take the care to the patient. I, I guarantee you everybody who's listening has had to wheel their patient somewhere, whether it's to the pre-op, exactly. from the ER to whatever. I mean, we've all had to do it. So <laughs> Sometimes you just got to get things done. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, it, and, and fundamentally, that was, you know, one of the things for access and the device. It's a hardware and software kind of platform. But with examining the ears, the first thing you have to do is look in the ear with a something called an otoscope. If there was something blocking it, like wax or infection, you wouldn't be able to get a view. So there are lots of tools which allow you to look in the ear. There's lots of separate tools which may allow you to kind of remove wax or infection via microsuction. And I thought, well, how can we bring that together? And then it made me think further. Well, a patient, any age, generally they come to the doctor and say, I can't hear. So well, how do we create a test that answers that question for them? And so the tool, the hardware element does all of that. So from a diagnostic perspective, gives you a high definition image of the eardrum, the tympanic membrane. If there was wax or infection in the way, we have a patented kind of spacing mechanism which allows you to remove the wax with a normal suction probe that you would use if you were using a microscope. We've put safety measures kind of in place that you can't actually push the probe further past the speculum, so only half a centimetre further. So the risk of um, perforating the eardrum is really low. And then the whole system comes with a set of headphones, which then does a accurate hearing screening assessment. So initially we do, for the audiologists in the audience, four frequencies. We're now moving that to eight. But we've really kind of looked at how 
that is as accurate as possible. So we've done a lot of research papers and studies to pitch that up against a standard audiometry booth. And all of that, the diagnostic, the therapeutic intervention, the hearing assessment is then all pulled together into a digital record, which then can be shared kind of with any specialist in any location, because where we have really found that we've had scale is the fact that we have created a training program that upskills the workforce. So your nurse practitioners, your PAs to deliver this service. If they then, the software element is if they see something that they're not sure about, they can click a button and it can alert a specialist to review that remotely and give an advice and guidance. And I think that is what has really given us um, a real edge from combining the hardware and software piece. So the hardware is an otoscope. The software, there's like a piece, is there a piece that then attaches to my iPhone or my smartphone for otoscopy? Like, let's get into that. So it kind of comes in this little box here. Okay. Um, I, know, I know this is audio only, but I think... Uh, <laughs> so there's a little suitcase. <laughs> yeah. But essentially what you can see here is it is like an otoscope, but actually much more. So you have the piece here, which is the otoscope piece, and you have your standard speculums, which clip on and clip off. That's a kind of your lighting element, and we've got some patented lens system arrangements here. And yes, there's a kind of smartphone, which doesn't actually function as a smartphone, but that's your viewing piece. And then this is the piece which, uh, I guess if they did a caption, you can see that you can't actually push. So do I need a separate suction setup for it to actually suction? You would need a separate suction. So if I'm in the nursing home and the wherever other applications that this can be used, other clinic settings... I do need a wall suction for this. No, no portable suction. We actually provide the whole the whole system, so a portable suction that you can just take with you. Okay. So you can walk around with it and have a portable suction tank that collects the wax. And then at the end of it, it comes with a set of headphones, which gives you that accurate assessment. I see. And so the software, that is going to come in the toolbox. There's not an adapter that I'm using on my phone. No, we, we provide everything. And it actually doesn't function as a phone. It's something called a mobile device management system. So really, for example, if someone decided to think it's a phone, you can locate it, you can switch it off, you can remotely turn it off. So it's more just a viewing platform of, of how you can see it and collects all the data. I see. And so my Toscopy pictures, I can snap and hold on to. And then the audiogram. Is it Pure Tones ear specific? Yeah, Pure Tone audiogram, left and right ear air only at the moment but that pulls an actual audiogram so you'll know when you look at that audiogram if it looks unusual then they need to go for a formal assessment or if they fail on a moderate to severe or certainly in the u.s if it's mild to moderate they can be fitted with an over-the-counter appropriately wow okay and then that data so it's on the software of the device can i upload that into epic or the other medical writer code systems yes so all of that then so the image and video of the eardrum, the history, there's a history beforehand, which is a very short kind of 10 point history and the audiogram gets uploaded into something because we call the Timper Cloud. We don't actually know that it's Mr. John Smith. We know that it's patient one, two, three, four, five. But let's say in your hospital, you would have your own access and uh, you would know that it's Mr. John Smith. That can then create a PDF, which has all of that information, which can be uploaded into Epic. In time, and we have done that in some of the UK healthcare records, you actually press upload and it automatically uploads into the healthcare record. And we are doing some work of integration into Epic. That's cool. And then in terms of the section, what size section? Is it like a five or seven French? Yes, yeah, a five. So the, the normal one that you would use in your clinical practice. 
It's just attached to a standard kind of uh, suction tank, which obviously in the hospital you have them wall mounted, but you can get these portable suction tanks as well. And then the ear speculum, is it variable in terms of size, depending on if it's a kid? Yeah, pediatric and adult. Okay. <laughs> um, so it can be both. There you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I appreciate that part of it, Krish. Thank you. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> um, that's really cool. Okay. So what was cool is you see the same clinical problem over and over. And it's like, wait a second, how do we uh, make this better? So when you start coming up with this idea, because there's a lot of different elements that have been put together to make this work. What was the first idea? And then who do you kind of talk to to balance these ideas off of? Like, you know, it helps to talk it out, right? One hundred percent. And I think the first thing was I thought, well, there is a lot here that you want to try and achieve. And, you know, where Timper was now, it didn't certainly start that way. It was, well, the first problem I faced was, well, if you look in the ear and there's wax or let's say an infection in the way, that's the first problem to solve because you can't go on and do a diagnostic test. You can't go and do a hearing assessment. So that's where the first version of Timper was very much a very simple wax removal tool. You look in the ear, there's a spacing mechanism, remove the wax. Diagnostically, it was okay, but we didn't have the hearing test. And then then it evolved from there. But to your point, you have to sort these things out. And, you know, sometimes, and I think it's dependent on who you talk to as well. So I had obviously a bunch of ENT colleagues and I had some really, really great colleagues who really were supportive and understood the mission and vision of kind of what eventually I wanted to achieve. But there were obviously others that thought, why I'm sure you have the same phrase in the US if it ain't broke, you know, don't try to fix it. So they're like, We're doing we're doing fine and, you know, we don't need to change the way we do things. But I think as I started to evolve the product further, I think as people saw that they said actually there's a real opportunity here to change how we deliver care. And so when you start, how do you check for a clinical need? You know what I mean? Like you might think it's a problem and you know, maybe you talk to ten of your colleagues and half of yeah, that, that I've had that same problem or and then the other half are like, well, you know, I've had to will the patient on one, so it wasn't that big of a deal. And, you know, there's a lot of other things that we do or have to deal with. And I think we, we, we solved for almost a greater thing than just the clinical problem. Because one of the things was, you know, there's only a limited number of specialists. And we all have huge waiting lists. We all have patients who are waiting weeks on end to see us. And... You know, how as a clinician would it be great if you could use your allied health professionals to help deliver the service and make it more efficient so that the ones, and I you know, I was in that place, that well, if I was seeing patients coming to my clinic, I would want to see patients that I'm thinking about needing an operation. I wouldn't necessarily want to see the patients that were just coming in to see me for cerumen management. And provided I could upskill the workforce to do that in a safe way, then, of course, I'd much rather them do that. And so I'm thinking about someone who needs a tympanoplasty, you know, a repair of the eardrum or, or something like that. And I think it was hand in hand of going out and then speaking to those allied health professionals. You know, they wanted and, and could do more. Could we develop a training program for that? And then actually then the two go hand in hand that you're solving for a clinical problem. You're doing something which your fellow colleagues actually say, well, yeah, if that happened, I would like that. And fundamentally, you're making care access closer to home for the patients. And if you tick those three boxes, I think hopefully then you've got a solution that is worthwhile kind of pursuing. Yeah, that's a great point in terms of like, you know, as an ENT, we kind of think in the ENT box as, is this a problem? But when you get outside of the ENT box and talk to your, you know, primary care, your pediatrician, the doctors in the you know nursing home or, you know, wherever, 
who are also seeing majority of these patients firsthand, it's like, wait a second, no, this problem's huge. We just see maybe a sliver of it in our little ENT world. And yet there's a whole lot more out there. That's super interesting. And then in terms of like market research, tell us what exactly is market research? And when you do that, do you already have to have like a product designed and in your mind or how does that work? You mean in terms of taking the product to market or kind of in the market research to maybe get funding? Yes, to get funding or is there a competitor already out there? Is there other devices like this? Is there a commercial need? So I think definitely before we obviously went for an investment, first of all, when you have an idea, you want to be like, well, is anyone else doing it? And so certainly you kind of scour the you know, landscape and see what, what is there out there. And certainly what, what I was able to see, and even to this day, there are products out there which um, allow you to look in the ear at high definition. There's products out there which allow you to do cerebral management, remove infection. There's products out there which, which does a, uh, an accurate hearing assessment. But what there wasn't was one which brought it all together. And I think that's still the case. And I think as soon as you then start taking that opinion of um, realizing that you've got something quite unique here, then the first thing I did certainly was go and speak to a patent officer and lawyer and just make sure they also did a kind of a search. And what has been apparent is that it's come back clear that, you know, we have got something unique and so we've got lodged multiple patents now around the product. So I think that was the kind of market intelligence and research. I didn't necessarily do that with a consultancy. I did that kind of myself. But then obviously the patent attorneys, they did look and make sure there was a good, you know, freedom to operate act. And then in terms of then having done that, the other bit, which was, I guess, relatively unique to our journey was, um, so because I was out there and I was talking about ear and hearing healthcare, democratizing it, just an early concept, I guess, in the UK, you were getting seen as a little bit of a key opinion leader on that. So I was very lucky that I went to a AGM, an annual general meeting of a charity group. And in that charity group, there was two, if not three of the big high street audiology practices at that meeting. And both of those managing directors came up to me afterwards and said, look, if you develop this product in the way that you think, we would be very interested. So it was also that kind of validation that there was a commercial need for it as well. And so talking about being sort of an opinion leader for this, was this part of your PhD training in global hearing health? Did you start that program before you thought of this or were you in the process because hearing is a passion and then this kind of developed. Can we tie that in? It was a little bit both actually, because certainly, and you'll know this, as a busy clinician, there are certainly not enough, and I think there's a lot of walks up, but there's not enough times in the in the day. And certainly, particularly in a surgical specialty, it's a very craft-driven specialty and you want to operate and do the time in the, in the operating theatre. So it was actually one of the things which in order for me to be able to get some of that headspace I did think, well, the only way to do that is to get some research time. And I think then that gave me a bit of dedicated time to think a little bit further. And um, I think the key opinion kind of thought leader, I think that kind of maybe naturally unfolds if you are kind of going to meetings and talking and hopefully talking sense, <laughs> then people will be like, yeah, it's an interesting point of view. And I think you, you've got to back that up with obviously some credentials, but I think they kind of happen hand in hand. And I've already always been, you know, academically minded. So, you know, even at the foundations of what we developed at Timper have been 
you know, we publish papers. We have this um, certainly thing which we have here in the UK. And Gopi, maybe you should join it as well. We have this Timber Health uh, Institute for Research, which is where we bring clinicians across the country uh, with audiologists, engineers, and, you know, talk about some of the research projects we have. But one of the things, you know, later down the line, I would think, well, why would we not do some cross-collaborative research between the UK and the US? Because it's the same clinical issues. It's just, what's the difference in dynamics of population? That's super cool. And then you used a a term democratizing hearing health. What does that mean? Is that increasing access? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's all about, for patients and certainly post the pandemic, healthcare has been challenging for a lot of people. And how do you democratize so how do you make it more accessible and i think we have that at certainly one of the cornerstones of what we believe here at timper like you know how can we take something that was traditionally delivered let's say in an ent's office and deliver it safely with allied health professionals and you know one of the other missions i guess is not only let's say getting it right in the uk and now as we've started operating in the us but there's no reason why you can't take that briefcase, as I showed you, to you know those low-income resource countries, deliver them and offer them a service which they never would have had access to. And I think that's kind of the ethos of what we have is that let's not just do it in two markets. Let's why why would this not be delivered across the across the globe? Yeah, that's really great. Okay, so going back to you know you have your idea, we're gonna have this device where we can look at the ear, I can clean everything out, I can get a hearing test, you talk to the patent lawyer, there's not really anything quite out there. Who do you partner with or talk to? How do you make the device? Then what? Yeah, and I think it's probably one of the most challenging things of any company of uh, funding. And uh, certainly what I did in the early days, I was very lucky I had some very supportive um, ENT colleagues and certainly a senior who was able to get some funding for me to have some you know time out to do some research and we got some small funding to develop a proof of concept product and there from that proof of concept it was okay what was interesting was then you have something tangible that people you're talking about it as a concept when someone can look feel touch something they're like oh this makes sense and then I think from there that was what made it easier to kind of speak to um, investors and showing that you had some commercial interest. I then took that proof of concept and kind of did some very soft trials, I guess, to see, you know, what was patient feedback, clinician feedback, pulled that all together. And then um, I would say, and now looking back a couple of years, is uh, it was almost, I went to a investment house and it was almost like Shark Tank because you just pitched and then, uh, you know, they were like, oh, we like this. And then they, they wanted to invest. And uh, I think you could argue, should I have gone to a few investment houses? But at that time I was like, oh, okay, someone's going to invest. I was like, may as well, you know, take you know, a bird in the hand and, uh, you know, take the money. And um, I think that was the greatest thing because then you could actually move the product on further, go and speak to these commercial organizations, let them look, feel, you know, touch the products and make sure that they're happy with it. And then have a milestone to hit and then actually then it unlocked more funding following that so i think it was trying to be a little bit frugal and we are you know always trying to be frugal and spend money wisely but it was it was certainly making sure we ticked some of that early product market fit which now i I think we've ticked significantly um but i think that helped kind of with that that journey and from a manufacturing perspective i'm not an engineer so i went to an engineering team and said look this is how i think I'd like the product to look like, taking inspiration from lots of different places. And um, they helped put together that proof of concept. 
was the engineering team a department or group that was part of the university or medical center where you were getting your PhD at? Is that where that resource was found? To start with, it was um, in the university. And I think that we got that to the very baseline product. And then we got some funding. It was like, well, how do we actually make this look like a medical device? But I chose the kind of design house team that were understanding of the stage we were at as a company. And um, so they were very happy to kind of work in a very agile way and get to that kind of proof of concept so that people could use it and understand what the next steps would be. So they start to visualize it. And I think that helped. Yeah. How many versions of the product do you think um, were there before you went to the uh, investment house? Well, I don't know. Well, I'm, I, I'm going to think how many, how many are in my room at home in my <laughs> garage? That'll be the museum in 20 years. Well, exactly, exactly. They, they make it a, a joke here. We should put it up and show that journey. But I'd probably say there must be about, I'm just trying to think in my head, maybe five, six. I mean, in the market, this is already version two, and we already know what version three is. Wow. But there are probably okay. like five versions before that because we've only really scratched the surface with what we can do with the product. Right. And you're probably, you know, asking your ENT colleagues as well as your GPs and other allied health professionals to check it out. What's bulky? How do things feel? Like, are you using it at a similar angle? Do you have to, you know, adjust too much, too little? We had um, been in the market, and so one of our biggest customers we have here is Boots Walgreens. Boots is a big pharmacy chain here, which is owned by Walgreens, which you have in the US. We're in 300 of their stores, and we were already in their stores training up their individuals to deliver a service. But what we did, which was very different to other young companies, we didn't really make a song and dance about that. All we did was focus on product, get the feedback and say, well, how do we iterate? And actually, it was interesting. The version two that we had, what we ended up doing was actually looking at steering wheels and how you hold a steering wheel and as I showed you, like how the timper fits in there, it just takes the weight off it. And so we really were really thoughtful about how we developed the product and really just focused on product, product, product before we then started making noise about ourselves as uh, as timper as a company. Yeah, because for microsectioning, you have millimeters of room, like you can't ding up the canal. Exactly, exactly yeah. <laughs> it's going to hurt or it's going to bleed, so it, it can't be bulky. As soon as it starts bleeding, it just starts filling up. Yeah, game over. Yeah, exactly. It can't be bulky. It's got to be finessed and easy. Tell me about your team. So who was like part of your team early on? And, you know, tell me about the team now. So the very early on, I took the conscious decision to kind of think about where, you know, you're starting up a company and you're a clinician by background. So what do you need? You just need someone to help you operationalize that business and has maybe been in startups before, but not not starting at the same time as you. So I took the conscious decision to kind of from a senior leadership perspective to bring someone, you know, who's got some of that experience to help navigate. And then from there, I think it, the, the team evolved and to making sure that we had different pillars of the business. So obviously we're a very tech heavy business. So getting a kind of chief technology officer in ops we talked about. And then as it's evolved now into kind of product, someone kind of um, supporting on the training side as well. And I think we've kind of structured the team. So I look to hire that kind of senior leadership team who were very happy to come in and roll their sleeves up. And in the early days, they may have come from big organizations, but you know, if someone needed to go to the post office and mail something off, 
you know, we would all pitch in and do it together. And I think that mentality has continued to spread through the organization. Yeah, we have now grown to a team of just under 100. We've got now 10 people in the US as well. And I think I've managed to craft a team that understands the mission and vision we're under, but also fills in the gaps of kind of where I knew I was doing a bit of everything and being really competent at, but finding people who can excel in those those pieces. I think it's sometimes quite difficult for uh, certainly a single founder and founder CEO to understand that one, you can't do everything and trying to delegate is always challenging, but I think uh, that's the only way that you're going to be able to scale. That's so interesting because there are several things, being a, a single founder, CEO, that being the same person, as well as being a physician, which adds a dynamic or maybe, a, you know, is that helpful, not helpful? You know what I mean? Meaning that's not the world we know very well. And uh, I think, as you said, having partners that know that world a little bit better, meaning, you know, how to make a business operate, you know, how to market something, how to produce, to have somebody that manages the products. So there's definitely different skill sets that, yeah, you can kind of list the titles, you know, positions that businesses have, but to really sort of understand your needs and sort of how it all fits together. And you've probably did have to play the role of every single one at some point. <laughs> but I think, I think the clinician, there's so many transferable skills that you look at. And, you know, as a clinician going through, one thing which is very clear that we have to do, you have to digest a lot of information and actually make some very quick rational decisions by digesting that information and certainly even when you're training as you get more experience that only gets better but being able to kind of digest information really well and rationally at, at a good speed as well I think it has been very helpful equally as a clinician you've got to be a good communicator so you need to have good communication skills and sometimes as a CEO that is one of the biggest uh, factors how do you communicate the business objectives? How do you communicate the mission and vision of the company? Um, and how do you connect with people? Because fundamentally, you are also getting people to join you on your mission. And I think those are very clear, tangible skills, which have uh, certainly helped. And I think the third thing is because we are a healthcare company, by having that clinical background, I think has been very helpful in one giving a lot of credibility but also in the product development because it just adds an, an extra layer of um, input that you may not have had if you were pure tech as an example those are great points okay that's going to be part two of the podcast is decision making <laughs> yeah <exactly. laughs> and how information processing <laughs> um, tell me a little bit about at what point you started to think about okay we're going to need some investors and coming up with a budget like, how do you know how much to ask for and how do you pitch it? I think that that was how I was saying in terms of getting the right people around you before you go out to ask for money is having a business plan. And I think you need someone who's able to help support and write that business plan and uh, give some rationale to the decisions. And I think based on that, it's then a milestone thing of saying, well, what do we need this money for? And so at stage one, it was like, well, how do we get the product from kind of proof of concept to something into the marketplace. The second would be, well, okay, we know that we've ticked product market fit. How do we continue to grow that and really show that there's an opportunity for scale? And then you could say the third bit is, well, how do you actually then go and scale? Depending on all of those factors, it, it is 
the different levels of money that you go and ask for. And, you know, I guess that's why they have those, those scales that are kind of, no one really, well, people pay attention to them, but, you know, you have, they can be at different levels. So you've got, you know, pre-seed, seed, series A, and, you know, someone could look at our funding and say that actually we're further along than we are, but actually those are the letters that were relevant at the time. Yeah. So you, you mentioned having a really good business plan and you just went over some of the parts of that business plan. So when you make a pitch, you're presenting sort of your vision, the idea, and then the future and how you're going to do that. What are some important other tips or points you might advise for somebody that, you know, has an idea they want to pitch? So one thing, certainly the business plan always changes. Like you can, I think, you know, nothing in a young company startup world is ever plain sailing. So there's lots of ups and downs and pivots that you have to make. And most, most investors are, they're aware of that. Like I think the important thing is it shows that you're still moving forward, which, you know, we've managed to show I guess in the early stages, it's, it's each investment round has different levels of questions, but sometimes there are some common themes. So, for example, you'd have the business plan and a view of how fast or big, you know, this company can scale and grow. But then also, you know, common questions is, well, what are the, like you asked earlier, like what are the competitors out there? How, what makes you guys different to, to the others? I think you've got to have a very clear structure about the use of proceeds like what do you actually want the money for and then i think there's always an element of well what is the future because no one just wants to invest in something whether that be a product or service that is just this is it and it's never going to evolve i think people want to see that there's something else coming down the line and how do you know uh who to pitch to meaning who would be a good investor for your product because that's a partnership in a way, no? Or tell me about that relationship and sort of how that match works. It's a long-term partnership. And I think for me, the investors that we brought on board, it is a real partnership. And I think one of my things which has been helpful to me in making sure that we find the right investor and, and join forces, because it is a partnership, is those investors that when you're pitching or talking about the problem, they just get it immediately. I think if you're constantly maybe having to redo your pitch or retell the story because they haven't quite got it, well, it could be two things. Either they haven't got it or two, you're doing a bad pitch. But I think if you get if you get the right thing where you've done a good pitch and they've understood it, then you know they can see the scale and opportunity, then you're both in it for the right reasons. And it is a long-term relationship. And you know there's going to be ups, downs, are you going to be sideways, but always moving forward. And then, so now in terms of getting the product out there, how have you guys been able to get it into uh, clinicians' hands and in clinical settings? What kind of strategies have you guys had for that? So first of all, was as we said, I think showing some of that early data, which shows that there was the product market fit and actually people could use it. And then one thing you shouldn't underestimate as well is the regulatory pathway, because whether it be a hardware or software, you can only run as fast as that regulatory pathway will allow you to run um, because they have their processes in place. So I think in order to commercialize it, it has to go hand in hand with that. Um, but always you're in the background talking to customers, talking to prospects of saying, well, look, we're bringing this out. Would you like to trial it? And now, as soon as we unlock that regulatory hurdle, then it's about trying to scale that. You shouldn't underestimate taking that into your kind of roadmap of getting it out into the marketplace. Because that's going to take up six to nine months or more. Yeah, exactly. 
depending what class it is exactly. Yeah. And then any big hurdles or challenges? Like when you think about your journey, was there just something that you were just like, oh my God, this was really difficult? Or is that all like kind of you put it in the back of <laughs> the closet? Well, we well I, I, I think it, it, it is constantly there. Like you always are going to face hurdles and challenges. And, you know, you could take right at the beginning where you're trying to change the way that care has been delivered. That's a big hurdle to get people to change their mindset of, uh, you know, how they think, okay, yeah, this can make a difference. And some people are like, no, like, why are you doing that? And then it's like getting an acceptance of people thinking, can I actually use this? So there's always hurdles. I don't know if I could probably say a kind of number one, number two, number three, but I think each day, each day you're going to have some challenges. It wouldn't be fun if it wasn't challenging, would it? And then in terms of just final pearls or advice for future entrepreneurs or current physician entrepreneurs in the audience? I can probably only give advice on certainly what's worked for me. And I think, as we kind of said at the beginning, it was being very clear and very focused on what I thought was a clear problem, opportunity, the fact that it was a clinical problem I was addressing, the fact that it was fundamentally right for the patient, and the fact that actually you could get some fellow kind of clinical buy-in to say, yeah, I think this is going to work. That doesn't always happen, but I think having some of those validation points helps give you purpose and kind of be like, yeah, you know, I can actually do this. I think staying true to that has certainly kept me moving forward. I think if you ask any of the company over here, kind of what's our mission, people are able to articulate that in various forms. But I would say the other part, which shouldn't be underestimated, is talking to people. Like, don't feel that you are having to navigate this on your own. I would definitely say that before we even started to think about Simple, I was really understanding the marketplace and what this commercial world was like. So I went to networking events and just understood how that whole process worked and even pitching. You know, I went to an event at Bloomberg. I wasn't even pitching. I was just there to watch the pitches just to see how people pitch. And I think those were just very useful things that I did in very early days. And I think by doing that, you maintain that of constantly learning and no... I believe that no, whether that be an investor or partner, wants someone who thinks they know everything. They want people that they can work with and understand that you know your limits, but also how you can excel at the things you're really, really good at. So I think I, I've now felt that I can identify those. Probably I'm still identifying more, but I think that's been really helpful. And future vision or next steps for Timpa? The next steps is uh, bringing Timpa to the US. So... We've just launched uh, over the last three months and we've got some great pilots underway already. Congratulations. Thank you. And so I think that's the next chapter. It's Timber USA kind of uh, kicking off. I think we've still got a lot of work that uh, there is in the UK and certainly working with our National Health Service. They're seeing this as a real solution for some of the challenges that they have in terms of waiting lists. But yeah, I think the next chapter is continue to scale in the UK and uh start our journey in the US. That's exciting. If our audience wants to learn more about Timpa or wants to reach out to you, are you on social media or what's the best way? So LinkedIn is a uh, pretty uh, easy, I'm just Christian Ramda on uh, LinkedIn. And then equally, obviously on the website, there's loads of contact information there as well. And then before we wrap it up, I do want to tell our audience that Krish has contributed a chapter on ENT in an AI and clinical medicine, a practical guide 
is that book out and can people get it if they want to read it? Yeah, I think it's just been uh, published uh, about two weeks ago. And so the lead author there is Michael Byrne. But we contribute to that. It's aimed for AI for clinicians, really, for them to look. And what we've done is we've kind of written chapters on each specialty of looking at the current kind of trends within AI in those specialties. So for myself, I, I contributed to the chapter on um, ENT and there's one on cardiology, gastroenterology, all the clinical specialties. And yeah, I think it's uh, it will be an interesting read. And, and you know, that's the future of where healthcare is going. That's awesome. We'll try to put that in our show notes so that people can also find that link. All right. I think that's a wrap. Thank you for coming on, Krish. Thanks very much, Kofi. Been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's version Hess and Yvonne Ogrodzinski. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Thanks again for listening and see you next week.